This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today on the Ether Review, we have real-life cryptographer Dan Bonnet. Hi, Arthur. It's great to be here. I'm a professor here of computer science at Stanford University. Uh, I work on cryptography and computer security. I've been here uh, almost 20 years now, and I've been uh, doing crypto uh, basically the whole time I'm here and even, uh, even longer. So you actually teach a course in blockchain and smart contracts. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, we've taught this course two times now. It's uh, the class number is CS251. In case anyone wants to look it up, all the all our homeworks and projects and syllabus are all available online. I teach the class with uh, Joe Bonneau, uh, who's been a fantastic collab- collaborator in the area. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, actually. There's a lot of student interest in uh, uh, courses on blockchain technologies, Bitcoin currencies. I have to say that uh, using uh, currencies and you know and money is a wonderful way to uh, get people excited about crypto. So um, it's been a lot of fun to teach the classes. The students have uh, loved the class, and we mostly focus on um, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and kind of blockchain technologies in general and how to use them for different applications. And you've written a book as well. Uh, yeah, we're currently writing a book on cryptography. The book is called uh, A Graduate Course in Applied Cryptography. This is uh, something I'm co-authoring with uh, Victor Shoup. Uh, it's available on cryptobook.us. It's uh, free, so anyone can download it. And you know, you know, please send us comments. We always want to improve it. What are the most exciting uh, developments in cryptography today? Uh, well, there are a couple of really, really exciting things happening in the field right now. So I'd say one of the most impactful developments um, in the in the applied side of crypto is uh, the development of TLS 1.3. Uh, so TLS, as you know, is a security protocol that we all rely on for encrypting traffic on the internet, uh, on the web. TLS, uh, the current version 1.2, has a number of problems with it, as uh, to, as to put it mildly. Uh, there are a number of attacks that have been discovered just even in the last uh, year or two. Uh, and so the community took, on, took upon itself to update the protocol and come up with a new version called TLS 1.3 that strips out a lot of the complexity of uh, TLS, removes old ciphers that should no longer be used, adds new capabilities that uh, we've been wanting, like better session resumption and um, uh, features like that. And it's actually nearing, nearing completion. The final draft now is circulating and will be uh, ratified soon. And finally, we'll have a protocol that's gone through a significant review and a significant analysis. And once that gets widely deployed, hopefully these issues that we're th- seeing with TLS will be uh, much less frequent. So, in fact, it's actually better for everyone if TLS is kind of kept out of the news and just works and is not constantly being compromised by uh, by different attacks. So TLS 1.3 is a big development on the applied side. Uh, maybe I can just mention kind of one fascinating development more on the theory side, something that's not going to be um, uh, impactful in practice for many years. And this is this development called um, uh, cryptographic obfuscation, or the technical term for it is indistinguishability obfuscation. Uh, these are 
cryptographic mechanisms to help you um, obfusc- uh, hide secrets in code. So that's what obfuscation is about. If you want to hide a secret key in a piece of software, we now have uh, cryptographic mechanisms that will allow, allow you to do that with some uh, provable security guarantees. Uh, there's been a lot of work on that in the theory community, but it's very, very, very far from having uh, any practical impact yet. But the, so the, the reason I brought it up is because it's kind of remarkable that almost all the open problems that we know of in crypto uh, can be solved using indistinguishability obfuscation. So it's kind of surprising that if this primitive ever becomes uh, closer to practice, many things that we'd like to do in crypto become doable. Uh, so that's another kind of fascinating development in the last two or three years in the crypto community. On that note, so you have a uh, so you have this this new cryptographic primitive, but crypto is like fine wine or expensive soft cheese, right? It takes a long time to age and uh, and achieve the the what is the word? We we we, we need community confidence in the schemes that uh, that we that we propose. How long does it take to establish that confidence? Uh, well, it depends on the on the primitive. You know, I have to say that uh, AES is an example of a primitive. AES is the most commonly used block cipher in the world today, and AES is a primitive that was uh, designed and you know uh, went through a review within three four years, uh, actually four or five years and started getting uh, a fairly uh, massive deployment uh, quickly after it was ratified as a standard. So that's an example of something that within a few years, everyone was very comfortable with it and uh, started using it widely. Uh, elliptic curve cryptography took a little longer to get, to get comfortable with. And so it really depends on the, on the type of primitive. Uh, it depends on the assumptions that are being uh, that, that are being used. So there's really no, um, you know, there's no rule of, some, rule of thumb for how long it takes for the community to get comfortable with something. Usually, it's determined by how strong the need is for that uh, for that primitive. In the case of AES, we really had to replace uh, triple des, which was the previous block cipher, just because triple des did not perform well and was aging. It had lots of issues with small block size and so on. Uh, so there was a real need, and that drove the the adoption of, of the quick adoption of AES. Um, with other other primitives, things things have been uh, taking longer. Um, so short answer uh, to your question, I guess. So, I mean, hey, some months. We're not so short. <laughs> you mentioned indistinguishability obfuscation, which I think I've heard of before referenced as code obfuscation. And, um, and what I'm wondering is, what is the impact of that on the world, uh, on, um, on blockchain, and how long does something like that take to get the confidence in the community that it requires for, I suppose you require different thresholds of confidence for different applications, right? Well, I mean, the nice thing about uh, modern crypto is that many of the primitives, many of the uh, systems that we design um, come with some sort of uh, uh, analysis of security, right? So we can say that the scheme is secure if the following assumptions hold. Uh, and so now the question is just, do we believe the assumptions, right? So do we le- believe that factoring is hard in the case of RSA, for example? Do we l- do believe that uh, discrete log on elliptic curves is hard in the case of elliptic curve crypto uh, and so on? So or do, we believe, do we believe that AES is a, is a block cipher? 
so uh, right. So the question is always to get confident, uh, comfortable with something, we have to be comfortable with the uh, with the underlying assumptions. And I guess we're going to talk about those more in more detail when we talk to quantum, the impact of quantum computing on crypto. I have to say, in the area of uh, indistinguishability obfuscation, I don't mean to mislead you. We are very, very far away from having from indistinguishability obfuscation having a real world impact. So we're nowhere uh, near. There are other things that will have uh, an impact much sooner. So TLS 1.3, that's going to have an impact right away, right? That's just going to make the world better as soon as it's deployed uh, right away. There are things that are, fur there are further out on the horizon, but uh, will have an impact faster than obfuscation. Let me give you two examples of that. Um, one is uh, progress in what's called uh, multi-party computation. So this is uh, something that allows, these are protocols that allow um, a number of parties to compute a function on their inputs without revealing what their inputs are. Let's give a timely example. I can compute the result of an election um, by just having a conversation between the voters without any voter revealing what uh, his or her vote were. So uh, there are now fairly efficient uh, systems that can do large-scale multi-party computations. Uh, quite remarkable how much that's improved. And that's something that could have um, impact uh, you know, sooner than, 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 than other things that we've discussed. So for example, um, in the world of, of uh, Bitcoin or maybe Ethereum, you can imagine us running a multi-party computation where I have two parties, one party has an input, the other party has an input, uh, and they can kind of communicate with, e with each other uh, through the blockchain and do a computation on their inputs. The result of the computation becomes public, but their inputs remain, remain hidden. So those kind of things could actually have um, impact sooner than other things we discussed. I'll, I'd like to mention one more thing, one more crypto mechanism that's being developed that uh, uh, is going to have an impact. I, I think many in the Bitcoin community have heard of SNARKs, uh, succinct non-interactive arguments of knowledge, so SNARKs. Um, these are things that allow me to prove that I've done something without actually revealing secrets that were involved in doing that computation. And so SNARKs are at the heart of uh, systems like Zcash, which is fascinating that um, they are being deployed and actually being used. It's beautiful work. And that's another example of um, you know, fairly advanced crypto primitives that are uh, getting, getting used. How old are uh, ZK SNARKs? Well, I guess the, the concept is, is, is actually relatively old. Um, you know, it dates back to the, to the 90s. Uh, but the uh, efficient implementations uh, have, have only come out in the last couple of years. ZK snark, the efficient ZK snarks currently are based on pairings. Uh, pairings themselves are um, are uh, you know they date back to uh, 2000 or so, right? That's uh, that's when things were developed. So, but, but but let's see. So the concept itself, like I said, that dates back to the early 90s. The um, the systems that are being deployed now were only implemented in the last couple of years, developed and implemented in the last couple of years. Are there any additional assumptions that needed to be made to create the efficient implementation of ZK SNARKs that earlier less efficient implementations didn't need to make? Oh, wow. That's a very deep question. Very, very, very good question. So it's, it's um, right. So uh, the assumptions that, that are needed for the, you know, practical uh, ZK SNARKs that are being used today are actually quite strong assumptions. Yeah, we, to be honest, we... I can't say that we fully understand the implications of those assumptions. They're sometimes uh, called knowledge assumptions. 
Um, and they're, they're not your typical, you know, uh, Diffie Hellman is hard or factoring is hard. There are a different class of assumptions. The, the need is what's driving the deployment. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's been enough time that we're getting comfortable with these kind of assumptions. And you see deployment of these schemes already in, um, in some systems. Um, there are, I should say that there are other types of um, uh, succinct proofs that require far, far less assumptions. Yeah. So that um, we, you know, we would be more comfortable with them, uh, except that they're not, not as efficient as the schemes that are currently being, being used. And so that's why you opt for one versus the other. Okay. And then so over time, presumably, uh, the, uh, the cost of computing these, these succinct proofs that have fewer or, uh, or more, or more well-understood assumptions will be, will be reduced and, and they'll be, they'll become the, the preferred way of doing these things. Actually, that's a, that's a fantastic area of research, kind of t- taking these, uh, older schemes and, um, the ones that rely on, on, um, assumptions that we're more used to and making them more practical. That's a fantastic area of research. And in fact, there are people working on that, um, in various places. So that, that, that is that is a really great, uh, great point. You mentioned uh, pairings, and that's something that I know nothing about. I've got to be honest, but it's a wor- it's a it's a term that keeps cropping up. Can you explain what uh, what is meant by the term pairings into or pairing based cryptography? Uh, how it relates to well, well, Z, I guess um, yeah, zk snarks and zcash would be a great great place to start. That's something everyone's familiar with. Yeah. Well, how long do you have? So let's see. So, um, there is nothing magical about pairings. Pairings are actually fairly um, well understood at this point. Uh, there are you know, thousands of papers that build systems based on pairings. They're even widely deployed. There's a, a company that was acquired recently, actually uh, found, co-founded by some of my students, called Voltage Security, that commercialized pairings. So there's actually quite a lot of uh, deployments out there of pairings. There's lots of implementations of pairings. Uh, so there's really nothing magical. They're standard crypto tools, and they're used in quite a few places. So, um, well, let me explain what a, let me try to explain quickly what a pairing is. I imagine many of your listeners are familiar with the Diffie-Hellman protocol. Do you think that's a fair assumption? Or? Very fair assumption. Yeah. Very fair. Yeah. Right. So in the Diffie-Hellman protocol, as you know, uh, we have our two parties, Alice and Bob, who wants to exchange a secret key. So one party picks a random A, the other party picks a random B. Alice computes G to the A, Bob computes G to the B, and now they're, they're off to the races and they have their shared key, shared secret, which is G to the AB. Now, um, now a pairing basically uses is exactly the same group that uh, is used for Diffie-Hellman, except it has one more property. And the proper, so you can do exponentiations or um, if you're more comfortable with elliptic curve notation, you can do what are called multiplica- point multiplications so it's exactly the same group as one where we would use that we would use for Diffie-Hellman, except it has this one extra property called a pairing. So what is a pairing? A pairing is another algorithm that takes as inputs uh, g to the a and g to the b, and it outputs something in a different group, just raised to the power of a times b. Okay. So again, given uh, this would be easier to do with a whiteboard, but I'll, I can explain <laughs> it. In- no whiteboards in the in, in recordings. So given g to the a and g to the b, we basically can move to some other group and let's denote the element by h. H is an element in some in some other group, um, uh, which is then raised to the power of a times b, and that can be done without knowing either a 
or B. That all that's all a pairing does. Yeah. So it's just basically additional mathematical structure that's available on the group in which you do your usual Diffie-Hellman algorithms. Now it turns out that uh, once you have that additional structure, all sorts of amazing applications become possible. I guess one of the first ones were a was a solution to this long-standing problem called identity-based encryption, which is basically how do we build a public key system where any string can be a public key. So in El Gamal, in RSA, public keys have very complicated structures. Um, you know, in RSA, the public key is going to have a, a large modulus and an exponent and so on. Uh, uh, with a pairing group in identity-based encryption, the public keys are just, you know, your name or, you know, your date, the date, or the numbers one, two, three, four, five. Those are all public keys. Yeah, so very, very simple uh, public keys. And it turns out that the, uh, so this was kind of an open problem. Building efficient systems was an open problem for a long time. And it turns out that the extra structure provided by a pairing solves this problem uh, very efficiently and very elegantly. But that's just the, kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of the number of things we can do with pairings. So it's really quite remarkable. It's, and, and it's very elegant also from a mathematical point of view that um, if you take your standard Diffie-Hellman group and you add this one extra uh, structure to it, all of a sudden amazing, amazing things become possible. Uh, this, this group itself that has the pairing on it is actually something that we're already familiar with. It is just an elliptic curve. It's just a special elliptic curve that has uh, this additional structure. And so it's kind of amazing. It's kind of really fascinating that traditionally elliptic curve crypto was just a direct replacement for working modulo primes. But the interesting thing is that elliptic curves actually have additional structure than the group of integers modulo a prime. This additional structure is a pairing uh, and that is what allows us to do all these amazing things that we've been able to do with pairings. So it sounds like, in a practical sense, what instead of having a, uh, a, a private key, which is a source of randomness that maps to a public key, with pairings, you get the ability to determine what the public key is that a private key maps to. Is that somewhat correct? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good description of what identity-based encryption is. Now, pairings, as I said, all they are is just this extra mathematical structure, but they give you something that looks like an identity-based encryption. And they, and they, and they tell you, uh, they give you lots of other things too. Like I said, it's only um, uh, IBE, identity-based encryption, is really only the tip of the iceberg of what we can do with pairings. That's really, that's incredibly exciting because the public key uh, address system that we use for all blockchain addresses and accounts it's uh, it's hopeless as far as individuals are concerned. I mean, it, it would just never work as a uh, as something that uh, the the punter on the street could make sense of. And so there needs to be this additional layer in between the you know the user and the technology itself. But it sounds like one day, probably no no time soon because you know we're we're here now. But uh, this kind of this kind of scheme could allow much more much more human-friendly interfaces with things like blockchains and other, and other cryptographic address systems. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting uh, point. So obviously the addresses in Bitcoin are used for, uh, for signatures, not so much for encryption. So there's uh, more of an issue of whether we can make uh, signature schemes where, where public keys are... Oh, uh, right, yes. Are, ...are arbitrary names. And in fact, we can do that too. Yeah, that's not so, that's not so hard. That can, that can also be done. 
Um, I, I have to say that pairings, I'm really glad you brought up the application to Bitcoin because pairings really do have one fascinating, actually a couple, but one particularly fascinating application to Bitcoin, which is that um, beyond identity-based encryption, we can also build new signature schemes from pairings that have properties that we haven't seen before. So let me mention one such signature scheme. So the signature scheme is called uh, uh, BLS signatures. Uh, they're due uh, to myself and two of my students, Ben Lin and Hobab Shaham. Uh, so these are called BLS signatures. And using a pairing, it turns out a BLS signature is literally just a single group element. Yeah, so unlike other signature schemes, where signatures are uh, kind of have two components to them. A BLS signature has only one component. It's just a single group element. So it is potentially shorter than other signature schemes. So if you use uh, pairing-based signatures, potentially the signatures in the blockchain would be, uh, would be shorter. So the blockchain would get shorter. But that's not the most exciting thing. The most exciting thing about BLS signatures is that they have a property that we haven't seen before, uh, which is called signature aggregation. So let me explain what signature aggregation is. This is generally something that's good for your audience to, uh, to know about because it has applications in lots of places. So signature aggregation means that if I give you 100 signatures, 100 BLS signatures by different people on different messages. Okay, so let's make, make sure this is clear. So we have 100 users. Each user has his own public key. Each user signs his own message. So user one signs message number one. User two signs message number two. User 100 signs message, signs message 100. So we have 100 public keys, 100 messages, and 100 signatures. It turns out with BLS signatures, anyone can take those 100 signatures and compress them into a single signature. Yeah, so it's kind of remarkable that you can take as many signatures as you want and compress them into just a single signature, and that single signature would convince the verifier that all 100 people signed the, the, 100, the 100 messages they were supposed to sign. So the compressed signature convinces the verifier that user number one signed signature message number one, user number two signed message number two, and user one, 100 signed message 100. Now, the implications for this for Bitcoin is, uh, as you know, there are... Um, uh, so t there are signatures all over the, the the blockchain. I guess with segregated witness, the signatures are are uh, sitting on the side, but the signatures are still still there. Well, they're all sitting there sitting there uh, in, uh, separately, stored separately. With uh, signature aggregation, you can take signatures. Imagine like you have a transaction with multiple signatures in it. Uh, you can take all the signatures in that transaction and compress them all into a single signature. So. Uh, the signature aggregation mechanism could have been a nice way to compress uh, the blockchain or com even with uh, segregated witness, you can comp compress the signatures that are stored in the segregated witness. Maybe another example that I can give where sig signature aggregation comes up is in the context of certificates. Uh, so when you have a certificate chain, again, you have multiple uh, certificate authorities issuing uh, a sequence of certificates. And that sequence, that certificate chain, is, becomes the entire certificate that the user uh, uses. Well, today, if you have a certificate chain of length four, five, six, you have six signatures sitting in the chain. If all these signatures were issued using uh, BLS signatures, they could all be compressed into a single signature. Yeah, so that's a way to compress a certificate chain into a much smaller uh, size certificate chain. So signature aggregation is generally something that, uh, again, I think people should know is possible. Uh, if everyone uses BLS signatures, then anyone 
can uh, aggregate signatures and compress and, and save on storage and transmission costs using that, uh, that mechanism. This it's this sounds interesting, but I wonder about the uh, the sheer volume of data required to verify uh, a BLS signature. Say you do have two hundred parties that have signed two hundred transactions. Say then, don't you need those two hundred transactions and the uh, and then the final BLS signature? Well, let, let's look at one transaction. Let's, let's suppose we're looking at a coin join transaction. So a coin join transaction has a lot of inputs and uh, say, you know, 40 inputs, and all these 40 users have to sign their inputs, right? This is how, in that single transaction, this is, this is how they, um, they indicate the fact that they're willing to give their funds as input to the transaction. Uh, today, all these 40 signatures just sit there, right? I mean, they have to be stored independently. If those 40 signatures were BLS signatures, you could actually take these 40 signatures and compress them and obtain just a single signature. Right, and then when you verify the blockchain, when you verify the transaction, you don't. All you need to do is you just need to have the public keys of those forty users, the transaction inputs of those forty users, which you already have. They're all written in the transaction, and now you only have a single signature that you need to verify relative to those forty public keys and forty uh, forty uh, transaction inputs. And can that also be used to? Uh, obscure the identities of the parties who signed those transactions? Ah, okay. <laughs> so as is, <clears throat> no, as is the public keys of the parties who signed the transactions, they have to be there. They have to be public. But you're, you're enticing me to bring up other cryptographic mechanisms that can help with privacy. So I'm, I'm sure you know about uh, confidential transactions <clears throat> where you can hide uh, the transaction amounts. Uh, similarly, you can imagine mechanisms if you're if you're interested in uh, hiding who's spending the money. Obviously, that takes us into the world of Zcash, uh, where where uh, people can spend money while hiding their identities. And in the world of Zcash, what's being proven is is that that's where Z, Z, uh, zk um, you know that's where snarks come in, <clears throat> uh, zero knowledge snarks that uh, allow you to actually prove in zero knowledge that you're authorized. To spend the money without actually revealing who you are. Again, these things today, what's what's used is primarily based on pairings. And but explaining how that, I can explain the the syntax of how that works. But explaining the underlying mathematics probably would take would take us longer <laughs> than we have time for. Yeah, and probably require a whiteboard too. And probably require a whiteboard. Yes. Well, let's actually. This is. I think honestly, we could drill down into this forever, and I'd love to. But uh, in the interest of making of of having broad audience appeal, maybe let's uh, maybe let's talk about uh, quantum computers and and uh, and what we'll I'll do is in the notes of this episode, I'll uh, I'll ask you after after we finish recording to give me some links for further reading. Absolutely. Yes. So I'm a uh, I'm really excited by the possibility of quantum computers. Again, I'm, I'm sure the audience knows a lot uh, how uh, that quantum computers are basically very different from the computers that we have today. They rely on the physics of uh, they rely on quantum physics basically to do their computation, uh, and they can solve problems faster than we can uh, solve them on a classical computer. <clears throat> Two examples that uh, come to immediately to mind are the classic uh, Shor algorithm and Grover's algorithm. Shor's algorithm is a, an algorithm that finds periods of functions very quickly. And if you can find the period of a function very quickly, that uh, directly lets you factor numbers quickly, factor and take this and compute discrete log, which is why quantum computers can break RSA and break Al-Gamal uh, very, very quickly. 
So all the signatures that are used in Bitcoin uh, would become insecure if uh, the adversary has a quantum computer, especially <clears throat> in particular, an adversary with a quantum computer can just, uh, uh, well, steal all the money um, uh, from um, public keys that have been posted on the blockchain. Interestingly, by the way, the uh, um, many public many addresses that are uh, posted on the blockchain are actually hashed public keys, and those would still be secure even if the adversary has a quantum computer until the public keys become public, and then uh, then there's a problem. Um, so that's the that's one uh, thing that quantum computers can do. The other thing they can do is uh, Grover's algorithm, which is a quadratic speedup. Uh, for search problems. And it's interesting, the quadratic speedup actually has an impact on the proof of work mechanism in Bitcoin. So the proof of work uh, would need to be doubled in in difficulty, right? So today, the proof of work is around uh, 70 bits. A quantum computer can solve that, can find the solution in time 2 to the 35, which is way faster than, again, assuming it works at the speed of a classical computer, uh, that would be potentially way faster than, uh, than uh, what we have today. So the proof of work would have to be made considerably harder for, um, uh, for these, for, you know, for them, um, um, uh, for the proof of work to continue to operate the way it is today. So uh, that's the impl implications of quantum computers to Bitcoin. Um, and the obvious question that's on everybody's mind is, you know, how real are they? When are we going to see them? So that's what everybody wants to know. So there are uh, a number of groups that are working on building them. There's a group at IBM. There's a group at Google. There's a number of startups, actually, that um, uh, build quantum computers. Uh, actually, the most well-known one is called Rigetti Computing, uh, which is a startup up, up here in the, in the Bay Area. And um, the direction they're following is very sound. It's, uh, the physics behind it is um, correct. Uh, it's As they say, it's an engineering problem to scale up from the five bits that IBM put out to the 100 million bits that you would need to uh, factor a 2048-bit number, say. Uh, yeah, so the estimates are you would need 100, about 100 million qubits to deal with error correction and other problems uh, in order to factor a 2048-bit RSA. So if you, uh, uh, because, it's, because um, we kind of can see a path for scaling these things, if you assume that Moore's law is gonna, take into, is gonna come into effect, so uh, the number of qubits that we have will double every 18 months, you just compute the log of a hundred and of a hundred million, and you get that. Um, what is it? I think it's around thirty years before quantum computers will have an impact on crypto. We're making some. We're making some pretty serious assumptions here, though. <laughs> I mean, we're assuming that Moore's law will come into effect. But where the the other assumption is that uh, Moore's law started working because even simple computers were already very useful, right? And that's what drove people to build better and better and better ones, and that's why uh, they doubled every eighteen months. Um, we don't know if that can be replicated in the realm of physics, in the realm of quantum physics. You know, we can only go by past experience. Uh, but the question, of course, is um, what's going what's gonna to be driving the initial deployment of these computers? Uh, are there any applications that can make use of small quantum computers? And the answer is, uh, well, there are. Um, and that's why IBM and Google is investing heavily in this. And they'll even say it uh, themselves that these quantum computers are very good at simulating physics. So nobody's interested in building a quantum computer to break crypto. Well, not nobody, but most commercial applications are not there to break crypto. They want to use it for good. And uh, there are basically you know, applications in simulating physics that will drive the, the, the growth in, in, in quantum computers. And so, um, uh, yeah, so if you assume Moore's, Moore's law is going to apply, then you know, we get an estimate of about uh, 30 years. 
So the question is, what should the crypto community do to prepare? And as you know, if we're gonna, uh, if uh, if something that's gonna break to RSA 2048 is gonna be a, be available in 30 years, that means that we have to start preparing uh, new systems right now because it takes a long time for new crypto systems to get mass ad- adoption, and that's why we're seeing NIST extremely interested in this area. So the National Institute of Standards. They just started their process for uh, what's called post-quantum cryptography. Um, so they're looking, soliciting, soliciting proposals. And the community has very good proposals for post-quantum uh, cryptography. So by the time a quantum computer is built, we will have deployment of uh, a quantum computer capable of affecting crypto. We will have deployments of uh, schemes that, as far as we know, are resistant to, um, to these quantum computers. And so, again, I want to emphasize that there is no point in building a quantum computer in order to break crypto, because by the time we have these quantum computers, the crypto will be immune to their attack. So there has to be other reasons uh, to build a quantum computer. And as I said, the reasons are basically, you know, commercial simulations of physics. And that's why, that's why, all, that's why all the excitement is, is there. But So you should ask, well, what are the candidates? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, there are there are kind of three or four families that are being considered, but uh, the most interesting ones, the most promising ones, are the ones based on various flavors of uh, problems based on integer lattices. Yeah, so uh, those are these are problems that have been studied for a long time. So I give you a 500-dimensional lattice, uh, and I ask you to find a short vector in that lattice. I, I'm not gonna. Define what a lattice is. I can point to um, to, liter- to literature about that, and you know, folks can 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 go read about this at their leisure. There's a lot of good surveys that explain how these things work. Um, these problems have been with us for a long time, so these are computational problems that uh, people have been studying for decades, and no one has uh, a good, uh, I should say, polynomial time, good classical algorithm for these problems. And as far as we can tell, there are no quantum algorithms either. That's an assumption. We don't know that that uh, is in fact the case, but as far as we can tell, there is no quantum algorithm for solving these problems, and that makes them ideal candidates because they seem to be hard for a quantum computer. That makes them ideal candidates for uh, building post-quantum crypto. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where the work is. So in terms of efficiency, the question, then the question is uh, how likely or how difficult or easy is it to use them? Well, here there's kind of a mixed story. So they seem to be actually quite fast as far as CPU work is concerned. They're actually, in some sense, even faster than uh, classical elliptic curve crypto. But everything is bigger. So the amount of data that has to be sent back and forth is much larger. For example, if Bitcoin had to move to using um, post-quantum signatures, the signatures themselves become a lot bigger. And so that would actually have impacts, again, on the size of the blockchain, on how much data has to be stored, uh, and so on. So definitely there will be an impact once uh, Bitcoin has to move to these new systems. One, uh, one question that is, uh, that's been lingering in my head is um, how will quantum computers affect, uh, affect elliptic curve signature schemes and how will that follow on to your BLS signatures? Well, any system that's based on factoring or discrete log will be broken. So ECDSA will be dead. Uh, Schnorr signatures will be broken. Um, even our BLS signatures will not will will not survive a quantum attack. Anything that's based on discrete log is not gonna is not gonna survive. So we're gonna have to replace all of our crypto if a quantum computer comes around. We're gonna have to replace all of our crypto with things that uh, 
are secure even if the adversary has a quantum computer. Now, I have to say that this is a fantastic area of research because you know there hasn't been much incentive for people to look for quantum algorithms just because these these computers don't exist. So there there is a small community of people who are designing quantum algorithms, but it's a relatively small community. So you might argue that uh, we still don't quite understand how to use them. We have these two classic examples, Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithms, algorithm, and a couple of other other um, example techniques. But you know there could be other ideas out there that we just haven't discovered yet. And who knows? Those ideas might actually uh, impact the assumptions that we're making today when designing post-quantum crypto. So the truth is we don't know uh, if the post-quantum crypto that's being studied today really is post-quantum. Um, yeah, we don't know, and that, deserves, that requires a lot more study. Fortunately, we have 30 years to wait. So we have 30 years uh, to, do, to go to this effort and, um, and explore. And as a result, everything that's being proposed today to augment the existing systems to make them post-quantum is not, no one is advocating throwing away ECDSA and just moving to these post-quantum systems. Instead, this, the, uh, the approach that's being taken is this hybrid approach where we use both uh, systems. We use both a post-quantum uh, secure system and a classical system together, and so that the adversary would have to break both in order to uh, attack the system. So if he has a quantum computer, he can break the classical one, but hopefully not a post-quantum one. And if for some reason the post-quantum one turns out to be not as secure as we thought, we still have the security of the classical one, right? So these hybrid schemes is where the world is going. And again, that unfortunately is going to increase CPU load, and it's also going to increase traffic because now you're going to be sending, well, more messages and signatures are going to get bigger because you have to sign twice and so on. So that's kind of the world we're moving into. You don't seem worried, though. Well, <laughs> for, a, for a cryptographer, this is a, a very interesting times to be working in the field because there's a lot to do, right? We have to design new systems. We have to worry about new threat models. Um, so for, for the crypto community, you know, me included, this is a wonderful time to be working in crypto. Generally, it's a, it's an amazing field and it's never, never a dull moment. There's always new things happening. Um, and this post quantum crypto is just the latest incarnation of kind of the new excitement that we all uh, need to be, to be thinking about. I should say, by the way, when the Google folks talk, talk about this, they have this wonderful saying that they, they say, you know, there's lots of technologies that are supposed to be here in 30 years. The example they give is uh, nuclear fusion, right? So that's been 50 years in the, in the future, and it's been 50 years in the future for the last 50 years. So, you know, they're the first, first ones to say that, um, you know, we think it's 30 years out, but who knows? Maybe in 30 years, it'll still be 30 years out. Who knows? <laughs> so we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. But at the same time, because the crypto community is conservative and we have to have uh, alternatives, uh, we have to start preparing now for this eventuality. In particular, Data that's recorded today, so data that's encrypted today uh, and needs to be needs to remain secure for the foreseeable future, perhaps even as long as 30 or 50 years, that data, if you encrypt it today using a classical system, you might not have the guarantees that it'll be, that it'll be secure in 30 years. So you sort of have to use both a classical system and a post-quantum system just to make sure that it has the security, that, that the longevity that uh, you'd like it to have. So people always ask me, so what should we be doing today? And the answer is, to be honest, nothing. Uh, you need to wait for the NIST process to complete. The NIST process will complete in about five years. Then we'll have a system 
that's been vetted by the community and has been gone has gone through uh, considerable analysis. And then in five years, once we have that system, that's when we start encrypting using using uh, a post quantum mechanism alongside a classical mechanism. And that will guarantee the that presumably, hopefully, will guarantee the longevity that uh, we're looking for. But today, I don't want to give people the impression that they should go out today and start thinking and start implementing um, whatever crypto system they seem seem right. Because that's a that's a guarantee that's a known way to uh, to make mistakes. And so we need to let the NIST process kind of run its course. Once we have um, an agreed upon system, we'll have agreed upon implementations, and that's where that's when we we start using them. So wait five years. Right now, do nothing. For a final question to to wrap this up, what do you see happening in blockchain that's really interesting? Obviously, you know all about uh, about the cryptography. Uh, is the best cryptography being used for blockchains today? And how do you see the how do you see blockchains evolving in the future as far as the the cryptographic technology that they're using? You know, I wish that uh, uh, Bitcoin, for example, would. Uh, have used Schnorr signatures instead of ECDSA. That would have simplified things. Schnorr signatures are, are a lot easier to thresholdize, for example. Um, they're a lot cleaner. So that would have uh, uh, simplified things. But as far as the uh, um, elliptic curve crypto is being used, you know, they, they made fine choices. Today, we probably would have chosen other curves, like, you know, the Dan Bernstein curves. Uh, but um, the main issue, I think, is uh, the signatures. I guess if they had used something like BLS signatures, they would have gotten the benefit of, of aggregation. Uh, and hopefully, you know, that could somehow be incorporated in, in the future. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's what I would say as far as the crypto is concerned. So if anyone is uh, interested in learning more about cryptography or if you have friends who would like an introduction to cryptography, um, I have a massive online course that gives a good introduction to cryptography and teaches people how to use it. And so that's available on my website or through Coursera. And that's, again, a free course that anyone can take uh, and, you know, take it and send me comments. Fantastic. Hey, thanks a bunch for joining me, Dan. This has been incredibly educational. It's rare that I get to make an episode with someone who is not from the blockchain space, but is from this, this specialized field of cryptography where which is a field we're so reliant on, but it's so opaque um, to, to the outsider. So this has, been, uh, this has been really, really valuable insight. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Arthur. I hope uh, this was a lot of fun, and I hope that this wasn't too technical. No, no, I think it's just perfect. Take it easy, Dan. All right. Bye. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email, contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.com.